What's up and welcome back to the TCP Podcast. I appreciate you guys for tuning back in as usual. Take a quick second, make sure to review this thing, rate it, share it with somebody else who may not know about it. It goes a long way. Thank you so much. For this episode, for this week, we have an incredible guest on. His name is Max Schmarzo. If you guys don't know who that is, please do yourself a favor and look him up. Um, In my opinion, he may be the smartest dude in strength and conditioning uh basketball performance he, he's just he's filled with a plethora of knowledge and he's dedicated really his entire life to this stuff he's he's a machine if you if you follow him on instagram and his other platforms he has a couple different instagrams and he's on edu if you're familiar with that platform it's paul favorites and max marzo educational platform uh please please go check that out i've learned so much from it they put so much incredible content on it um, but anyways, Max is an incredible, incredible mind in the performance realm of strength and conditioning. And it's not necessarily just strength and conditioning. It's everything that really revolves around performance. You know what I mean? The psychology of it, the mental aspect of it, the actual performance, the anatomy, the physiology, the adaptations, the, everything that goes into performance and strength and conditioning, he, he knows <laughs> or he knows uh, something about it. Um, And today, uh, we do talk a little bit about the performance side, but he also is a scientist in general. So we talked about the science of learning, skill acquisition, motor learning, how it pertains to sport. Um, We talked a little bit about block versus random practice. We talked about what's called the Bayesian brain, or I'll I'll let him kind of discuss that in this episode. It's a really, really good topic, um, really great concept, and basically how our experiences shape who we are and how our outputs then affect and influence our our inputs as people um and then obviously that pertains to sport and performance so how does that you know mold us as a player mold us as an athlete and he talks about that and then we talk about skill acquisition and why maybe looking at a guy like kobe bryant or michael jordan isn't necessarily the best model to follow because they are the best of the best so maybe we shouldn't look at those cases because they were going to be great at least more more likely than your average guy. You know what I mean? So he, he brings up a couple different cases, Kelly Olenek being one who, you know, those are the cases that we should look at. He was not even supposed to be playing college basketball, but, you know, over a span of one summer, he developed into a NBA-level athlete, NBA-level player. And those are the cases that we need to be looking at. So he kind of dives into that. And then we do talk about performance a little bit, how it pertains to sport, to basketball, but I am going to get him back on at some point for part two. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the performance, the strength and conditioning aspect of things. Because um, we did, it was very skill acquisition, motor learning heavy today, which I loved. So I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Like I said, please check out Max on Instagram, Strong by Science or Always an Athlete. Those are his two two pages. And then please, please, please check out his his platform, Edu. Uh, YouTube, his he also has nutritional products, um, upper echelon nutrition, phenomenal, phenomenal stuff. So check out all of his stuff and please enjoy this episode. Without further ado, Max Marzo. All right, everybody, welcome back to the TCP podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance, and I appreciate you guys for tuning back in. I have Max Marzo on a Zoom call right now. Super excited to get him on the call. Um, I've been following you for a really long time, and I've been on EdgeU for probably two years now. So I really love you and Paul's stuff and Edgy has helped me a lot as a coach. I oh, appreciate that. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to start, 
just like a quick background um, of kind of who you are and then what is what is your why? Yeah, um, former, well, I guess, basketball player. Every current, I guess. We don't really stop identifying as a basketball player, I suppose. But um, played college basketball. And then I had a short-lived career, I guess, right? Everyone wants to play more than just college basketball. But it was, it was fun to play Division three hoops. Um, and then went into kind of the sports science world. So athletic training, strength conditioning, had two degrees there and kind of long story short, um, got into the world of sports science because as an athlete, I wish I was more athletic. I put a lot of time in. Um, I wish I was better. I put a lot of hours in. I didn't get the results I necessarily wanted to see. I, I think everyone's kind of been there. Um, and that's why we all get into this world because something probably bothered us when we were going through this path and we enjoyed it, but we want to dive deeper into something that we wish we could have overcome ourselves. So in a way, we're almost reflections of things that we lacked. Um, those interests, like no one's, if you're naturally super athletic, I'm not really sure why you'd be interested in athletics right. versus, um, you know, someone who was interested in athletics and not very athletic. You have always envied and admired those who could. That famous line, those who can't teach. And so I think we kind of fall in that realm. And so I, I bounced around. Um, so I did some college work and then I did some private sector work and then kind of got into more of the private training um, where I was the running my own show kind of deal um, with which happened to be basketball players because, well, I guess that's an area we gravitate towards. And so I guess my why would be um, trying to help what would be a younger version of myself, right? If I were to um, have come to myself I don't want people to waste time. I know there's lots of opportunities to try and be a better basketball player, lots of resources for an individual to try and figure that out. But as someone who went through lots of things as a younger athlete and didn't get the results I wanted to, I wanted to hopefully avoid that situation. And that kind of led to me working with professional athletes because those guys typically have to have a very fine scope on the process, the, they have to have a very much dialed in process as a younger kid. That's not always the case. You can kind of get away with lots of, for lack of better words, sloppiness or margin of error, but in professional world, you can't. And so my why just comes down to helping people, um, that if I was in that situation, I too would like to have had that kind of resource. I'm not really sure that's a why, but that's kind of a, the, the short summary of that. I, I it's most certainly a why it's, I, I think it's a great why helping other people, helping some like like a younger a younger yourself. Um, so I, I I like that why. Um, and recently, I just I listened to your episode on uh, Joe DeFranco's podcast, and you brought mm -hmm. up a topic towards the end of that show, um, the the Bayesian brain, kind of like how our we're we're built basic basically based on our own past experiences, and that formulates us as people as athletes just who we are in general. Um, I kind of wanted to start with that, the mental oh, side, awesome. the psychological cool. side. So, you know, we obviously as coaches, we kind of start with like a needs analysis <clears throat> and movement screens and whatnot, but we also, I feel like neglect the psychological side of things. Um, can you kind of talk about the Bayesian brain and just, yeah, 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 go, go ahead with that. So um, Bayesian statistics was made by, I don't know his full name. I believe his last name is Bayesian. And the history of it is kind of interesting because he didn't think much of it. 
when he made the statistics initially, I think it was actually found after he died in one of his journals. So it wasn't like a statistical idea that whenever um, we make decisions, which innately are based on statistics, probability analysis, we are constantly updating our variables. So a very simple way of thinking about this, if you had to make consciousness a formula in the way you might do it for AI or something of that nature, uh, you would need to have a set of variables that the body or the individual or the intelligence is perceiving. And then you don't just have a set of variables, but all those variables are weighted. So there's a certain weight to them as in uh, percent responsibility for an outcome. And based on performing that action, uh, you get an outcome and you get an outcome relative to a predicted outcome. So you have a predictor state, which is you expect X, and then you have an actual outcome state, which is say predictor state is x1, outcome state is x2. And the difference between that is the difference. So x1 minus x2 is the difference. And then your body goes, well, hmm, that wasn't what I expected. Uh, so maybe these variables need to be shifted. Or maybe I need to update a new belief. Or maybe I can learn something new. And so it's the idea of your body constantly predicting stuff. And in that state, uh, that's how we operate. It's a We do it subconsciously. Um, and we have certain things that we can have biases, and that's the traditional sense of a bias where you overweight a variable that does not need to be overweighted. Like someone who um, maybe has a really firm belief in something that isn't founded in whatever, that's a bias. And that bias has a really heavy weight on something. So if you've gone through a certain experience, and this is why personal experiences aren't always as, uh, as I don't want to say important, but aren't great for the macro statistical model because we bias them. We think, oh, this worked for us. And so we'll heavily weight that. But remember, we're not working with us. We're working with someone else. And so when we weight our variables, we have to be careful of our own innate biases towards those variables. For example, uh, waking up really early might have worked well for Kobe Bryant. But in reality, that's probably not a smart decision to just wake up super early when you have a large allotment for time to actually sleep in. And so the idea of Bayesian thinking is the idea that um, it's, a, it's a way to help explain a, a, an evolving state. So in a complex system, not to get too nerdy, um, we have every output affects input. Um, and so when we make a decision, it's not an isolated decision. The decision has feedback. So it says, oh, was that result successful or not? And so you can start to look at this and start to understand why people act certain ways, why people might have beliefs in certain things, why people shoot, why Steve Nash shoots a running jump shot, uh, a runner, um, AJ Green, who I work with, uh, shoots over his head and why Steph Curry shoots really quick. And Isaiah Thomas, the latter of the two, the lefty, um, shoots with a really high jump shot, uh, elevation. Um, why LeBron or Luca is very physical. LeBron does certain things that he does because we have a whole bunch of attributes physically in basketball, if our goal is to successfully score the ball, we're going to start to organize ourselves around the success that is scoring the ball. And so we're going to use our attributes. There's a reason why Luca doesn't do what Gerald Green did. There's a reason why Kenneth Freed does what Kenneth Freed did as an all-time rebounder. But Kevin Love, also an all-time rebounder, did it in a very different fashion. Both elite rebounders, both successful in very different ways. So. Um, and the reason why that's important is because you can start to use this idea of outcome, the success of rebounding, and then you can use the reflection of someone's physical abilities as to how they might be successful. 
So the Bayesian model would say, okay, Kevin Love is a big, burly guy, especially out of college, who's much bigger. Um, he's not super duper athletic. He's not super duper fast. So he's going to use certain angles and leverages to get lots of rebounds. He's going to read the ball really well. Kenneth Reed had a long wingspan. He was super athletic. He was super aggressive towards the ball. Now, I didn't watch a lot of film on him. But I don't recall him being someone who would um, have extreme, say, discipline at boxing out. He was more like Montreal, Montrez Harrell, where he's super aggressive going to the ball, which are both great things because if you're super athletic, being super aggressive makes sense. Kevin Love could be super aggressive to the rebound, but he's not going to move there that fast or jump that high to get there. And so um, you can start to understand what's the best skill process for that person to develop. Teaching Kevin Love to be super aggressive and try and beat someone to the peak of the ball, you'd then be stuck trying to say, let's make Kevin Love really athletic. Let's make him jump high. But really, you're fighting an uphill battle versus, well, let's use what he has already, his physical capacity, his strength, his size, to work on leverages and angles to be successful. And so the Carl Friston is someone I mentioned um, in Friston, Friston, one of the two, um, I always say his name incorrectly, about using the idea of, it's called a free energy principle. And it's not like the thermodynamics free energy principle, but it's the idea that we are trying to eliminate what are called environmental surprises, which is a fancy, fancy word just to say like um, outcomes we didn't expect. So this goes back to the Bayesian model. We have predictor outcomes. We predict something. And if we have something that's really far off that prediction, that's a surprise. When it's really far off that prediction, that's not good for survival purposes. Like imagine if you were to go and um, go, uh, let's say, dig a shovel into the ground and you predicted that the ground was very soft and so you barely push into it. Well, it's very hard. It's not going to be effective. Another example would be predict that there is not a predator nearby, but there is a predator nearby. That's not a good situation. You predict that your fadeaway jump shot will be able to get off without being blocked, but it gets blocked. That's not successful. So we have all these predictor models, and that's how our body organizes itself. And that's why Steve Nash doesn't get blocked in the same way. Luka Doncic doesn't get blocked in the same way. Dirk doesn't get blocked. Or Isaiah Thomas and LeBron, they're all not getting blocked. That's the predictor. But they're all doing it in very different ways. And so it's really interesting when you start to think about skill development in this fashion, because as someone who's a science nerd, but someone who has a, um, a love for skill training and passion for it, it's unfortunate because the schooling system never teaches people who want to be motor learning educators. That's what I call it. Someone who teaches a skill. They don't teach them the science. There isn't a class to go, you know, it's all, it's motor learning typically because the money is in it towards like um, re-education of motor patterns. For example, someone had a stroke or someone had an amputee and there might be more research money and stuff like that in that area, but no one's going to have like research money and how to teach a hook shot. And so as people who want to learn that, we aren't taught that. And so we do really bad biasing um, processes. What worked for us, what we think works. We justify it through self-talk, not through science. We're like, oh, we're going to do this move and that move because someone else did it. And then that's why we do it. Or we're going to do this or that because we think it works. But really, we don't have any justification for it outside of a biased belief. And so I'm kind of a nerd like that. And I like to be trying to uh, objective. I'm kind of a, a weird mix of art and, and hard science. I think we should understand how, how we think about things and how we process things and then really understand where our opinions come from. And I think again, as skills trainers, so I like to pretend that, you know, what I do is in, in related into the skills world, um, that we 
really understand that because when it comes to getting better at a sport, at the end of the day, the final uh, linchpin of success is do they get better at their sport? Not if they squatted more, if they ran faster, do they actually get better at their sport? That's always a predicated on a skill transfer. So that's kind of how the Bayesian brain or the Bayesian thinking model um, is connected to what's called like, I, I call it reflectionary physiology or reflectionary um, uh, acquisition of skill. The ability to your physiology forms around your skill, right? There's a reason why someone with long arms like Matisse Thibel is very good at stealing passes by being elusive versus someone else might be a very good defender by using their physicality like Lou Dort. Very different players, um, very good defenders, but one has an insane wingspan and one is very physically strong and they're very different, successful in different ways. It's not like Matisse Thibel is going to body you up in the same way Lou Dort will. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. So you start to look at that. And then once you understand how skill works and you understand the base principles, things we can really define, then we can work on making a player better. Because if you don't understand all that, we're just kind of guessing on the periphery. Um, and so it's, I'm not saying I'm right, but we have to have a framework of thinking. And right now in the skills world, there isn't a framework of thinking. It's just like, hey, work really hard and do these drills and you'll get better. Shoot more shots and do more ball handling. <laughs> it's like, well... I shot more shots than anyone else I knew growing up. I did more ball handling. I could do all the two ball handling drills in the world. And I sucked at ball handling because that's not ball handling. Magic Johnson basically dribbled with his right hand his whole career and just bodied people off because the idea of ball handling in his case was to make sure you didn't turn it over. And you cannot turn the ball over just dribbling your right hand the whole time if you know how to use your body um, versus like, hey, let's shake and bake someone like Allen Iverson. Um, so it's very different conversation there, but I'll stop there before I go on a rant. No, I mean, you brought up so many <clears throat> phenomenal topics and I, I get really deep into the skill acquisition and motor learning side of, um, skills training as well. I, I, I do both skills training and performance training. And I, like I said, you brought up a lot of good topics and kind of the, the idea that your skill set is going to be formulated based on your own biomechanics or anthropometrics and how you are built as a person. So there, like you said, there's not a lot of, I guess, critical thinking in the skills world. Um, and this idea of random practice versus block practice, I feel like has been brought up a lot. Um, and a lot of studies show, or if you listen to Rob Gray or do yeah. any of that kind of, kind of research, it, it, it shows the research at least that random practice transfers way more to the actual court than, than block practice. What, like, can you dive a little bit more into that and kind of this theory of like, like you, you mentioned Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, they kind of just got their shots up. And you, I think they're obviously genetically gifted to where maybe they didn't need as much random practice, but maybe for your, your gen pop guy, he might need more random practice. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, it, it's a good topic. I've never seen someone who hasn't been super athletic who can get away with that. Like, of course, Michael Jordan can get to a spot and just shoot a jump. He watches highlights. First off, they called like a thousand fouls anytime he got touched. If you just right. watch his highlight, the guy had the quickest whistle. People say that year was physical. I, I question that heavily. I've watched a lot of his games. <laughs> the amount of times that guy gets breathed on and they call a foul is pretty astounding. Um, but, and nothing against Michael Jordan. My gosh, that's not the point of the conversation. But he would just elevate. Like he would just get to a spot and he would just jump over people and shoot a fadeaway on repeat. Right. Um, on top of that, he was a top draft pick, right? He was not like a guy who had to somehow develop into something um, 
that he wasn't. And so I don't like to look at the guys who are already projected to be great because I think that's a big mistake. What I look for in a coach is someone to have want to learn from is someone who got more out of what they had, not someone who got out of what they had, what you expected to get out. Kobe Bryant was playing professional. He was like 14 years old. Like he's a, he he was going to be a pro. I'm interested in like a, a Jimmer for debt. Maybe that's an extreme example, but he wasn't like a high draft or a high prospect coming out of college who became an elite scorer. Like who are these guys? Kelly Olenek's a very interesting one. I mean, people are going to look at me sideways. He redshirted his sophomore year in college. He wasn't supposed to be anything that great. And then he comes out and leads the nation. His story is a wildly interesting skill development story if you follow it. And people don't want to do that because he's not an NBA all-star. Okay, yeah, Kelly Olenek. Like a, like a Duncan Robinson too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kelly Olenek, he's most interesting because I watched him play before he became good. And like mm. he was, could move well. He had shorter hair. and But his story, I think he redshirted his sophomore year. So he played two years or one year and then redshirted because he wasn't good enough, he said. And then worked on his skills and came back and was like argued for national player of the year, which oh, wow. to me was like mind, mind boggling. Like this guy like wasn't doing much. Look at his career. It's a wild story. No one talks about it because um, he's not like, you know, the, the, the greatest basketball player of all time. But his what he got out of his college career was something that People should probably take a deeper look into what, like, what did he actually do? What did he take his time to figure out? So someone who makes a, a crazy skill jump is someone that always interests me. Um, Kawhi Leonard's kind of like that as well. If you watch his college tape, he was not very refined as a college basketball player. Um, he liked to just duck in and be bigger than people. Mm. Like it wasn't like he was um, probing in space, but it, that could also be an NBA thing where the, the game changes so much that it actually favors his skill set because he was not not interesting in college like people had him on draft boards put it that way um but to get back to the, the actual question the block versus skilled um we it's a good representation of how internally we bias things because there's research that shows like when people do random practice they don't think they're getting better even mm-hmm. though they are but when people do random practice they actually have long-term better outcomes and so we sacrifice the acute for the long term. So when we do something, we don't have anything to judge whether or not we're getting better. All we have is that single practice set. And so if our only means to assess whether or not we're getting better is based on am I making nine out of, or eight out of 10 versus seven out of 10 from the corner, then we're going to lean towards that as our internal reflection. The problem with that is that is a task in of itself. And so we get lost in that specific drill. And in reality, the issue isn't the drill. The issue is the transfer of the drill. So if we hang our hat on that drill and getting better at that drill, then how can an athlete ever be faulted for saying, hey, you know, I went from five out of 10 to eight out of 10. I got better. Well, the issue isn't getting better or worse that drill. The issue is that drill actually doesn't transfer that well into the game. Right. And so we have an internal um, kind of air system where we like to default to that. A classic example of that is like in lifting weights. I mean, if you ever have a newbie, someone who's brand new to lifting, general population or whatever, they're always going to default to soreness and fatigue. It's the only things they can measure. Did I Am I sore today? Am I tired after my workout? If those two happen, then it was a good workout. Because we can't assess things that aren't tangible in the short term. Right? You're not going to put on 50 pounds in your bench press in two days, maybe in two years. And so how can I bypass my internal biasing, right? What is your brain sampling 
to understand whether or not you're getting better. Well, it can't measure a bar speed. It doesn't know. So it's going to sample internal feedback. It's going to sample, am I fatigued? Am I sore? And then we are biasing, our, or we turned our antenna onto that in the same way that when we're shooting hoops, we turn our antenna and our satellite towards, did I go you know, seven out of 10 or six out of 10 versus in this very chaotic random practice, there are non-comparables. You're not comparing apples to apples. And so it's very hard to understand whether or not you're getting better until you actually get better. Right. And so that's one of the problems with it. Yeah. That, I mean, it's there's no, like you said, in your face quantifiable things within a random practice. So you're kind of sacrificing that initial gratification for a long-term thing where it's just, it's, it's really easy as a coach to say to a parent, like, oh, they made, like you said, eight out of 10 today, or if they're watching, they're making shots. So it's easy, maybe from a business perspective to do that kind of thing. But if you're actually looking at development of the player, you may have to, or you may want to sacrifice that session for, like you said, the long-term process. Mm -hmm. It's, it's tough, man. Like you, people have a business, I get it. But the reality is like, we don't know what works best. We, right. we have an idea and there's a margin of error within that. Um, and some people, the way they shoot corner threes and they practice, let's say they shoot 10 threes in the corner in a row. And you say traditionally that doesn't work very well because it's the same shot. But maybe that person mentally is good enough to imagine that each of these shots are a game shot. And I think that's an interesting realm we don't dive into enough. Because as someone, I always got benefit out of that. I was a very good shooter. I still am a good shooter. But I was always mentally thinking that all these shots were game related. Mm. And when I did that, you would speed it up. You'd have, you know, you, you can't have every time you're shooting by yourself because someone's like, Max, well, you know, in a constraints approach, isn't someone going to close out on you? Like, how are you going to get better at them? Well, I don't have that. So I can trick myself into having that. I can know what that is like in a game. I can shoot it quicker. I can shoot it with pace. I can practice my footwork. Mentally, I can see a guy closing out on me. And I think that can help quite a bit. It breaks up. It makes it more relatable, at least, um, to the sport. It makes it somewhat more contextualized. I think the big issue is when you see people mindlessly shooting, like, oh, I'm going to get you know, 100 shots up. And they catch, and they're just going at some arbitrary syncopated pace. Not mm -hmm. syncopated, but synchronized pace that's not like, anything they would shoot in a game. Well, that's an issue. But if right. you're in there and you're thinking each shot's different, you're catching the ball. And sometimes when you catch it, you're not spending it to, to get the perfect grip. You realize you're in a game, you're going to shoot what's available. So I think there are levels to it that you can't quantify necessarily from a research standpoint, but you can make an educated justification for it, right? So like, oh, I don't have the research that supports that. But is there a mechanism of justification? Well, if I understand how the brain works and how the body works and what we're trying to perceive when we're doing a randomized thing where someone's closing out on you, actually, I would at least have evidence to say that imagining this is at least going to be better than not imagining it. Is it as good as the game situation? Well, I don't know. But is it better than? Probably. And if I had the probability of doing something better, I'm going to take that probability. No, absolutely. V visualization is, like you said, something we, we probably don't emphasize enough. And I, I talked to Josh Fan a couple months ago now. Um and he talked about he uses this visualiz or a visualization with Jeremy Lin quite a bit. And he said that that's had a really big impact on whenever I think 
forget the the year, but they were trying to adjust his jump shot and that helped in that process a lot. So that's that's a great point to bring up. Um but at the beginning of uh that discussion or that that question random versus block, it kind of talked about Kobe and Michael Jordan, they're just naturally gifted. Um, I kind of want to shift to the performance realm of things, the the weight room. Um, if you're not so physically gifted and maybe you have a really good skill set as far as you can shoot the ball really well or you see the floor really well, but you're just not as physically gifted, you can't really, you know, keep up with people at the division one level, whatever. How like what would your approach be to helping them kind of you know, help them get to that level physically and how, like, what, what would your approach there be? Yeah, I guess from a general standpoint, like we'll take a very macro, assuming the kid's still a kid and we're yeah. not a pro, like getting, jumping higher and running faster helps. Like yeah. it, it, it does like, um, very basic power work. Like, uh, you know, every week try and lift something that's kind of heavy. That makes you work, uh, lift some stuff fast, jump onto things and sprint. And you'll, you'll go a long ways. Um, when it gets into like, oh, I've kind of done that already, Max. And now what? I think that's where the tough stuff comes in. That's me to understand like, is it actually like a physical issue or not? Because there's a lot of guys who don't play any good defense who are physically gifted. (laughs) It's the fact of the matter. There are guys who are a lot more explosive and quicker and longer and more athletic than Peyton Pritchard. But Peyton Pritchard will go out there and give you all he's got. Like it's, um, and so is it really a physical thing? Do people's physical abilities mask their technical, tactical flaws? Like someone like Matisse Thibault is one of the weirdest defensive guys you'll ever watch. He gets beat routinely. It's like the, you should go, I don't know if you watched it at all. There's a guy who does defensive clip breakdowns. He's like talking about Matisse Thibault. It doesn't make any sense. He gets beat and then just pokes it away from people. And so like, okay, is he like playing good defense or like, has he found like a cheat code in the system where he's so much longer with his wingspan that everyone has this predictor model where like they're by him. So I'm going to get loose with the ball now. And then he like plays off of that. It's almost like you game the system. Like I don't know if you ever played when I was little, I played need for speed uh, underground. I've never played that before. It's like a race car game. And there's a game you could drag race. I would play my brother. Um, And then I, I'm the king of gaming the system. And so you're supposed to like shift gears and race down the, the track. And he was better at me than shifting gears. But I was always really good at the start. So what I would do is immediately off the start, I would just run into him. And I basically would jail him, like a jail dribble, but shrag race style, mm-hmm. the whole way down the track and beat him. So like, I guess technically I won. And it's like Matisse Thibel's technically playing good defense, even though he's getting beat. He just pokes it away and blocks it. He's amazing at recovery. And so you're like, well, um, you know, uh, is someone like not playing good defense? He's a great defender. He's a professional athlete. This is not a ding on him. All kudos to him. Good job. Right. Go, get, go get your money. You're awesome. You're an NBA player. You know, nothing. It's just interesting to watch from a, a, a thought standpoint. And so um, when you look at other players, though, like there's a lot of guys in AAU you'll watch who can put their elbow in the rim. Like you could cook on defense any day of the week. Like, like they just they just don't have the footwork, they don't understand the reads. And so as a kid, really understand it's a two-pronged approach. Like it's not just being fast. Like, are you getting beat because you have flat feet? Are you getting beat because you're in bad positions? Um, you know, I don't care how great of a defender you are, if you have a three steps longer closeout because you're late to react in a ball swing, yeah, that's cookies all day. Like, I don't care who you are, I don't care if you're in the NBA, you're dead sprinting at me, I'll score on you. There are just advantages and disadvantages that exist. 
if like if you ever played one on one with someone, if you give someone an unlimited dribble count, I don't care what professional player that is. If you give someone a whole court and an unlimited dribble count, you're going to score basketball. <laughs> For sure. You, you can't move faster than the offensive player. I can just keep dribbling around until I get open. And so if you put yourself in such a disadvantageous position, you're not going to score. Like it's just the fact of the matter. You're not going to be in this or this. You're not going to stop the score. You are going to get scored on. So understand why. If you understand why, then you can actually work from there and really define, is it actually my lateral foot speed? Is it, you know, X, Y, and Z. An easy way to look at it is like, look, are you faster than the guy who plays good defense on your team? And if you are and you still don't play good defense, you might want to think about your technique. <laughs> like, it's right. if you, and I always laugh too. Like, if you can get by someone on offense, shouldn't you stop them on defense? Like, if you're someone who's explosive and gets by them on offense and you don't have an issue with that, like, shouldn't you have the same athleticism to be able to stop that? Yeah. No, it's interesting. Defense is a weird one, though. I was talking about defense, but any physical ability, really consider how you do it, why you do it. Not everyone needs to be explosive. Luka Doncic, I don't think he even dunks a basketball ever. He just bumps everybody because he's huge. King of the bump and fade. Right, for sure. And like like you said, find something heavy, lifted or sprint, jump. You've been on record talking about skipping, jumping, hopping, sprinting. If If you couldn't do anything else for the rest of your life, you would do those things. What is so great about those things specifically? Yeah, go sprint up a hill. Like if you could do one exercise, go sprint up a hill, push a sled, push it. Don't pull a sled, push a sled, drive into it. Right. I don't know why I want to walk backwards with everything. Just sprint. Go run fast with it. Um, and the reason why it's so great is it does. Um, it's cyclic. So there's a rhythmic aspect of it. You get your ankles involved. It's open to closed. You hit open impact at the ground, working on some of the proprioception aspects of it. We think of stability too often and just like, can I catch and hold a position? Dynamic stability is more like your ability to redirect momentum. Do you have the ability to hit a position and move out of that position? Um, too often we're obsessed with like, oh, can I hold that? Okay, cool. Like, neat. I've watched a parkour athlete. They don't hold anything. And these guys jump off the most crazy forces ever. Steph Curry intentionally falls when he makes, I'm assuming intentionally falls, when he makes a hoop. Like, he doesn't land and stick after a layup. Uh, redirect momentum. You know, it's dynamic stability. So when you're running and jumping, you're dealing with momentum and you're organizing your body and limbs to coordinate that fashion. And the reason why you do that instead of just like playing basketball is because basketball, you're always going to default to what's successful in your sport. And you might just end up shooting corner threes <laughs> or you might just end up shooting a floater. When you're running and jumping, you don't have the limitations of basketball. So you can try things that you wouldn't do on the court itself. For sure. And I, <clears throat> to kind of go off that again, if if you were prescribing jumps, skips, things like that, um, you you you've talked about gamifying those kind of things too for for the intent. Um, if you're jumping, obviously, if there's an actual hoop that you can go grab or hanging a tennis ball or the ceiling, like what what is what is the reasoning behind that? Yeah, it's uh, you have a more engaged, like um, a positive you stressor, so something you're excited to do. Imagine if you go in, you're going to talk in front of a bunch of people, you got a presentation and you didn't present, I mean, you didn't prepare and you go and talk, right? It's very stressful. It's nerve wracking. It's negative. You start to sweat. But if you have a presentation, you know, you're going to crush, you know, you're going to do well. It's exciting. That's the difference. Um, it's kind of a magnified example. But if you go and try and jump stuff, jump stuff, jump and touch stuff, it's fun and exciting. And you're not worried about sets and reps, but you're worried about the outcome. You can do with a lower hoop. You can do this outside. You can do this inside. You can measure how far you jump, how many times, like jump three times. How far did you go? Can I run and touch this thing with one foot? Can I run and jump? If you just try and dunk every time, 
kind of demoralizing to be honest with you. Anyone who dunked every day, like it's because you always get obsessed with your best days and you don't want to have a bad day. Mm -hmm. Like you go out there and dunking every day is like probably the most mundane, boring thing in the history of the world because it might, might be cool like a couple days, but the minute you don't jump as high as you did before, you start to question your entire training. And so like make it associated with basketball, but not totally associated with basketball that you're allowed to suck. You're allowed to not be good at things. So we would do things. We bring on a pole, we hang on a tennis ball from it and we give them a basketball. They'd be on the grass and they'd run and jump and have to hit it with two hands or something like that with the ball in their hands. So they're still practicing the technique as if they're taking off with the ball, but it's outside. So it's not contextualized to that a basketball court. So it's not like, oh, I jumped 10 one today. And you start to be upset that you're not jumping 10-3. You're just jumping and touching something, right? We're going to get the result and you're going to make progress over time because everyone knows there's ups and downs, peaks and valleys in training. We don't want the valley to diminish our progress in the terms of mental. It's very easy to not perform well and be like, oh, I'm doing everything wrong. Like, oh, this isn't fun or whatever. And that becomes a distressor. It's not positive. That's a negative stressor. We want you stressors, fun, exciting, make it gamified, measure how fast you move, how high you jump bar speeds, um, anything you can do that's kind of similar nature to basketball, like, but not totally basketball. So like we'll do, uh, I train with a uh, will curious in the morning. We'll have fun things where you like, uh, call a battle ball for basketball. It's a shooting drill. We have, we use the side hoops and we play a game where we have to outshoot each other. But when you're playing the game, you don't even count your makes or misses. You're just so focused on making it. And a lot of times you go like out of 10, you're so focused on the misses. Oh, you know, I missed three, I missed two. When you're just trying to beat someone, you're just focusing on the positive result. And so when you're trying to gamify something, really understand that sometimes it's not just the the movement that's important, but it's what your focus is being on as well. Like you're, you're directed at success versus concern about the negative. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, doing that on the court as well, it just the intent, like the the atmosphere, the energy is all, always way better. Um, but absolutely one twenty four. You got, you got time for a quick speed run. Absolutely. Yeah. Go for it. Your time remains at four minutes on this. Is it all good? Yeah. I think we should be able to get through the, let's get it. You gotta go fast. I got a clock on me. It's game of yep. question round. <laughs> all right. So first one, I, I forget when it was, but on YouTube, like a little while ago, you put out like a little series on uh watermelon. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So did you ever figure out uh, how exactly to tell what a good watermelon is? We did. Good job. So four or five things. Break it down really quick for y'all. There's a female male watermelon. The female watermelon is typically less sweet. The male watermelon is sweeter. Female watermelon is more oblong. The male watermelon is more circular. Now there's a couple of key things you want to look at. You want to look at the sunspot, the size of the sunspot. That's that area that you see the coloration or discoloration, typically more pale. But you want to see on a spectrum from pale to darkish brown yellow kind of you don't want it too brown that's the ripeness so the typically a little more browner side the kind of dirty yellow is typically most ripe now the webbing on it which is how many times it's been pollinated is going to dictate the sweetness a little bit you also want to feel the weight i like mine not as watery so you actually want it to be lighter when you pick it up you don't want a heavier one a heavier one's gonna be water weight but lastly and most important i found out is the spacing of the lines the more distinct the lines are and the greater the spaces between them, the better the watermelon's been. And that's probably been the most consistent factor. So don't knock on it. Don't do any of that stuff. Don't sing to it. <laughs> Just feel the weight, spacing the lines, and look at how ripe it is. Interesting. Here you go. It's a quick breakdown for you. Quick breakdown of the watermelon. All right, cool. Um, so if you had to start a franchise for, for an NBA team right now with, with one of these three players, which ones would you pick or which one would you pick? We got John Morant, Jason Tatum, or Luka Doncic. Luka Doncic, 
I like it. Easy. Hands down. Yeah. Sorry. I like John Morant. I like uh, Jason Tatum. Luca is um, an interesting individual yeah. for just what he does. No, I agree. He's he's very unique. Um, third one, if you had to give up either cake or ice cream for the rest of your life, which one would you give up? Uh, probably cake. I could do, I, I don't think I want to give up ice cream. I'm a big ice cream cone guy. I could, give, I could give up cake. Fair enough. And then this one is way more subjective to you. Um, it can be as quick as you want, but one of your biggest pet peeves in strength and conditioning. Pretending like we know, like stop playing pretend like we don't know. Yeah. Um, it's strength conditioning and you got a minute and a half. I got 90 seconds. It's the, it's one of the few areas that it, it, it needs to be skill orientated. Like so often we get so far away. It's like from the skill, like how many coaches actually ask like what the athlete's working on? Like, Hey, what skills are you working on? Like, if you don't know the skill, the athlete's working on, how can you train them? Yeah. I had an athlete come in, a professional athlete, the first day they come train with me. I said, Max, what are you doing today for the workout? It's the first day working together. And I said, I don't know. Said, what do you mean? You, you, I'm paying you, dude. I said, why would I know what to do? You came to see me. What do you want? He said, what do you mean? I said, dude, one of us gets paid to play and one of us doesn't. All right, I pay to play. So in reality, you need to know what you need to work on. And I'm that resource to help you figure that out. I can't play pretend and say you need to do these 90 different things. You know how you get paid. You know how you get your bag. Let's work on those areas that are going to help you get there. Because if you don't know that, how am I going to figure it out? And I'll play make-believe and like, oh, you need to do this. You need to stand on one leg. You need to do this twisty thing. Nah, I have no idea. Because if you're trying to work on a step-back jumper, sure, we can do some things. And if you're trying to work on your free throw, you don't even need to see me. Like, <laughs> let's be real. No, for sure. And I, I, it's a big pet peeve of mine as well. So I like that. But hey, I, they, I say they pay me to make them more money. Exactly. They pay me to lift weights. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm not sure how many seconds are left, but Max, I, I appreciate your time, man. I really do. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the speed round at the end. Hopefully we snuck it on in. Yeah, we definitely did. So, awesome. all right, Max. <laughs> it's better than I appreciate your time. <laughs> See ya.